Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi har igen på grund af uforudsete begivenheder i verden og kolossale forandringer i idéernes åndsliv og politik, blevet nødt til at lave en lille smule om på planen, men det er en plan, som gør, at det bliver bedre. I den her uge, der har jeg talt med den albansk fødte forfatter, Lea Yppi, som er en meget, meget god ven af information, som har skrevet sin helt fantastiske erindringer, som hedder Fri på dansk og Free på engelsk. Vi valgte at samtalen med Lea frem, fordi Lea den 11. november kan opleves på Louisiana, når hun kommer til Danmark, og den 12. november kan opleves til et morgenmadsarrangement herinde på Information, hvor hun vil fortælle om sin nye bog. Lea er professor i politisk filosofi ved London School of Economics. Hun underviser i socialisme og marxistisk teori. Og det fantastisk interessante er, at hun faktisk er vokset op i et samfund, hvor også hun blev undervist i socialistisk teori. Hun er nemlig vokset op i det socialistiske Albanien, oplevet socialismens totale kollaps. Hun oplevede, hvordan neoliberalismen kom ind og tog over, og hvordan også den svigtede hende. Hun oplevede, hvordan at det Albanien, hun voksede op i, som var et stolt land, antiimperialistisk land, hvis mission hun troede på, hvordan det udviklede sig til en borgerkrig, og hun oplevede, at man forlade det land, hvor hun er født og vokset op som 18-årig, og aldrig vende tilbage. Det er den forhistorie, som hendes erindringer handler om. Der er den helt utrolige kvalitet ved erindringerne, at ideologierne bliver levende. De får konkrete karakterer og figurer. Når man som jeg er født og opvokset i Danmark, så har man ikke set ideologier have forskellige karakterer. Man har set den samme verden med forskellige ideologiske blik. Når Bernie Sanders taler om Danmark, så tænker man, at det er socialistisk. Så kigger man på den sociale tryghed og retfærdighed og sikkerhed og tænker, jamen det er jo nok det mest socialistiske samfund i verden. Når andre taler om Danmark, så tænker man, at det er jo et ekstremt konkurrencebetonet samfund. Så kan man få øje på neoliberalismen over det hele, præstationskulturen, fordringen om at udvikle dit eget potentiale som et moralsk imperativ, så ser vi neoliberalistisk ud. Når man ser på den danske indvandringspolitik, så ligner vi et nationalistisk land. Når man ser på den danske kulturpolitik og den form for blød magt, vi udøver i verden, tænker man, jamen vi er jo på en eller anden måde også et kulturradikalt paradis, der bliver ved og ved og ved og tro på frigørelse og blød pædagogik. Så vi ser ideologierne i den samme virkelighed, alt efter hvor vi ser fra. Lea Yppi har oplevet noget fuldstændig anderledes. Hvordan ideologier skabte forskellige virkeligheder omkring hende. Hvordan hendes skolelærer, Miss Nora, var en socialistisk ideolog. Hvordan hendes farmor var en aristokratisk ideolog. Hvordan hendes far troede på mennesket og elskede mennesket og fællesskabet så meget, så de eneste politiske helte, han kunne have, det var nogen, der var døde. Hvordan hendes mor overhovedet ikke troede på mennesket. Overhovedet ikke troede på, at vi kunne finde ud af det sammen. Og derfor var han hård liberalist, som troede, at markedet skulle frigøres. Så Lea Yppi er vokset op i et ideologisk eksperimentarium, og ud af det er vokset en helt fantastisk bog, som vi nu skal tale om. So let's start. Yeah. Well, uh, Lea, you're the first person I ever met who was younger than me and who wrote the memoirs. Uh, and, uh, why did you, uh, I think you must be 41 by now, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for the Why why did you write your memoir? Well, I don't think of it as a memoir, actually. So uh, I I think I would find it a little bit frightening if I were to think that uh, I wrote a memoir. Um, it's true that it is a memoir. It ended up being a memoir, but I don't think of it 
as a record of my life, which I think is what a memoir is, and that's what usually people mean when they say that they've written their autobiographies. What they mean is that they sort of, you know, they're highlighting the significant events in their life. This is actually about my first 18 years. And so it's more of a coming of age story through which I wanted to talk about different philosophical ideas and about freedom and how freedom gets realized in particular different political systems. And in a way, I thought whenever I, when I began to write this book, which was supposed to be a book of philosophy, and it was supposed to be a book about the relationship between liberalism and socialism, and not at all with characters and people and context in a way. It was meant to be an abstract philosophical book. And then as I started writing it, the more I thought about the ideas, the more I thought about examples from societies, the more I kept thinking back about my past and my childhood and my teenage years and uh, sort of different ideas of socialism and liberalism that I had come across. And so the ideas became people, and it was easier to tell the story as the story of the people I had met and the characters I had encountered in my life. And so I don't think actually of the book as a book that is about me at all. Um, I think of the main character, which I guess happens to be me, <laughs> as an observer of events and as an observer that tries to put together events and ideas in a way, I guess. And that reflects on the characters that have surrounded her, the people that she's met, the friends, the family, the social context, the new things that she experienced, the things that she stops experiencing, as all contributing to give you uh, some contextualization of you know, what we mean when we actually talk about these different ideas, when we talk about these different systems and how they shape the lives of individuals. So I don't think of it as a book about me. Uh, and in fact, when I wrote the book, one of the things that I was more careful and that I tried to do was to not let the main character take over. I wanted every character in the book to have a story to tell and to, uh, to, to make readers reflect on certain ideas. And I wanted all of them to be free from the author in a way. I didn't want the author to impose the views of you know, the author to the characters. So I wanted them each to tell them story, their stories and to tell them independently and to tell them without being... Uh, conditioned by one perspective, which is the perspective of the author. And now, of course, that perspective does come through, and especially it comes through at the end of the book. But I try to avoid it as much as I could throughout the book. And I think you really succeed in that. The good thing about the personal relations is that no matter what ideology the characters in your life is carrying, then there is a basic solidarity with that that ideology. So in a sense, I felt this is a book about political ideology, but I don't read it as an ideological book. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the idea was to also try and explain the genealogy of ideologies and how, you know, often we tend to assume that we we have particular political ideas and, of course, we defend them on certain grounds and we have justifications, we have reasons for them. And sometimes we think our reasons are better than other people's reasons for having an opposite set of ideas and an opposite ideology, which is, you know, plausible and I think reasonable to believe that. But I think it's also helpful to think that everyone comes to the principles that they endorse because they have particular histories. And maybe if you knew more about their histories and the reasons they have, you would enter into a more productive conversation with them. You would have a more open dialogue about, you know, why do you believe this? Why do I believe this? And I'm convinced that we all want the same thing in the end. And I guess the story in the book is that we all want freedom and we have different interpretations of what freedom requires and how it can be realized in different political systems. 
but that it's useful to think about freedom in this way that is more conversational and that is open to different ways of thinking about it and that almost embodies a kind of deliberation on what what does this require, what does freedom require, how do we create a free society. Yeah, I think in that sense, it's also a way of being a Kantian today, that there is a universalism at the end of it, or as a, as, as a premise. And that is very successful. But for our Danish listeners who might not know too much about Albania, can you tell us a little bit about the the regime that you grew up under and how it conditioned your family's life? Yeah. So Albania was, at the point in which I was growing up, which is in the 80s, completely isolated from the rest of the world. It was isolated. It's, so Albania is geographically in the Balkans. It's uh, At the time in which I was growing up, it shared the Adriatic Sea with Italy and it bordered with Greece on the one hand and Yugoslavia on the other, which of course then separated in different states. But by the time in which I was growing up, Albania had fallen out, not just with the Western, what they call the Western imperialist world, but also with every other socialist state that there was, because they considered all of these other states to be too reformist and to have departed from the um, uh, theory and what the theory requires, the socialist theory. So they had fallen out first with Yugoslavia, then they had fallen out when they split with the, they were in an alliance with the Soviet Union, and they split with the Soviet Union when uh, Khrushchev de-Stalinized, Uh, because they remained faithful to Stalin and didn't like the fact that the Soviet Union at one point decided to revisit the cult of Stalin. And then they entered into an alliance with China. During the Cultural Revolution, they were its strongest ally. And then eventually also split with China when the Chinese decided to take a more reformist path with Deng and so on. And so after Mao's death. So when I was growing up um, in the 80s in Albania, the Uh, Albania was isolated. We couldn't travel. We couldn't go out. There were few tourists that came that entered Albania. There were few foreigners that entered Albania, which were usually of two kinds. They were either Orthodox Marxist-Leninists, often from Scandinavia, actually, <laughs> who thought that uh, who thought that social democracy was terrible and it was a wreckage, and what they needed was to realize some pure uh, communist society like the one that Albania aspired to realize. And this fed into the system, the, the government's own narrative of what the role of Albania was in the world, because it was being supported by these uh, Marxist-Leninist friends uh, around the world who wanted Albania to be the model around which they fashioned their socialists. So that was one one part of tourism. And the other one were these exclusive uh, tourist operator, controlled tourists, who cooperated and were monitored by the um, secret services in Albania and so on. But these were usually Westerners that weren't at all um, inclined politically, or if they were politically inclined, they were they basically came to confirm that Albania was horrible and you know it was brutal and so on. So just, just kind of looked at you and looked at the locals with this eye of um, uh, ultra critical eye, and with the conviction that you know socialism wouldn't work anywhere in the world, and that Albania was a demonstration of that. So both approached the locals with this kind of outside um, perspective, one which was of idealization and the other one which was of, uh, uh, in a way, just completely realist and almost like brutal perspective on the country. So we those those were our only encounters with um, the foreigners. And then the country itself was, uh, well, a state-controlled economy. There was no private property. There was no political freedom. The um, you know the party, the, the former, it was called the Labour Party, it was the Communist Party, controlled uh, everything politically. There was severe censorship. But when I grew up, I didn't really, and this is one of the uh, stories in the book, is that I didn't really know 
about any of these things as I was growing up in the 80s because I was exposed to this ideology of the state and to this idea that Albania was one of the few remaining pure communist committed countries in the world and that our mission was to promote socialism not just in Albania but also the example of Albania around the world. And of course, I didn't know anything about that which I received in school and through you know, moral education classes uh, in the various clubs that I attended as a child. And so this was the, the society in which I grew, was a sort of socialist society committed to socialism. And then on the other hand, um, my family was slightly different because they clearly had reasons to suspect some of this. And I had picked up throughout my childhood that there were signs in my life and in my family's responses to various political events. One of them was the death, for example, of the uh, former secretary of the Albanian Labour Party, Enver Hoxha, which was considered the sort of historical leader of Albanian communism. And I remember I was uh, very upset by that death. I was, you know, five years old. But every child in Albania remembers this day. And, uh, you know, everyone was crying. People were wailing on the streets. And it was the, the news was delivered in every... Um, office in every school in every nursery I was at nursery and I remember my parents didn't seem upset at all <laughs> and so and and so but I didn't know why so I had this throughout my childhood there were these, these moments that I remembered later as moments in which I was perplexed that my family didn't seem to share my enthusiasm for the party or my commitment to communism and instead, they seemed to think something else that I wasn't quite sure either of what they thought or of why they thought what they thought and so why they didn't share this enthusiasm. And so only later I discovered that um, they had, uh, that this was a family of dissidents that had had generations of uh, political persecution and trouble in the family. And that the reason that they weren't committed to socialism is that they had been victims of the system for the entire 50 years that it had been, almost 50 years that it had been in place. But of course, as I say, I was subjected to these two different influences on the one hand in um, school and on the other hand at home. And the home one was much more subtle and very difficult for me to understand at that point. I think my, my wife, she grew up in Iran during the 70s and her family was revolutionary and they finally escaped Iran. But there was another symmetry in their relation to the state because within the family, the, the yeah. parents would be honest and they would say, well, don't trust anything you learn in school. Don't trust right. anything. So the family would be a kind of nucleus of opposition against the state. Yeah, I mean, that was also the case in Albania eventually, but it depended a bit on the age of the child. So, And this is the thing with me is that I grew up and I, when, when I was 11, the system changed in Albania. So up to the age of 11, my parents just didn't trust me to... You know, they didn't think I had the maturity or the intelligence to be told all these things about, look, you need to be suspicious of the uh, propaganda around you, because they were worried that if I did, I'd go and talk about it with uh, my friends at school or with my teachers, and they, there would be repercussions. In fact, there was one episode in which I remember my mother had somehow revealed, you know, she used to tell me stories in the evening when she put me to bed, and she had revealed that uh, uh, almost by accident, you know, she just wasn't thinking about how she used to be a part of a very wealthy family, property-owning family. And she told me about, you know, we used to have a boat and we used to have land and we used to have factories. And as you can imagine for a child, for their imagination, this is quite a striking image to have, you know, the fact that there were these parents, this family background with extreme wealth. And we had a neighbor with whom I was, um, of whom I was very fond and who was a party member. 
And so I remember the next day I went and told this neighbor, I said, look, you know, my mom, uh, she's, uh, she's told me she had all these properties and they were so rich. And then I don't know what happened, but they lost these properties. And he was, uh, they, these neighbors were kind of protecting my parents because they were, as I say, well seen in the party. And he told me, no, no, this is really, you don't remember, you don't, you know, it was just a story. She just told you about uh, some other things and it was just an imagination. It was just an evening kind of bedtime story. And, and he completely, you know, even this glimpse that I had had into what their real life had been, this neighbor who was a party member who was watching and making sure that my parents weren't getting into trouble because of me and kept an eye on me, he completely demolished it. And so after that, I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe it was just a story, so I better not tell anyone. It's It shows throughout the book that you have great solidarity with, with your parents. I don't have any sense that that you felt betrayed by them, but Uh, but when the system changed, you realized that they had been talking in codes. That when they were talking about people going to university, they were actually t- talking about being being sent to camps. And they were, you know, there were all these codes that they were talking in your parents. And you could say that you were brought up in in a system of maybe not falsehood but untruth in in your in your own home. How did that affect your confidence with your parents? Um, I think they succeeded in explaining. It's true that when they told me the truth in the 90s, it it took me a while to adjust and that I couldn't believe it first. And then when I believed it, I kept wondering because I had inherited all these categories from socialism about, you know, what the wealthy people did and how they used to exploit the poor. And so I kept thinking, well, maybe they deserved, you know, why did they do all these things? Why were they so rich if they had? And, and But of course, the other part of it was that my grandmother explained to me that a part of my family had also been Although they were privileged, they had been left-wing and progressive. And so my grandfather, for example, was in the Popular Front in um, in France. In the 30s, he started in France and was a part of the Popular Front. He had met Anna and was close to him. And so uh, there were all these different stories about the family, which I guess my grandmother succeeded in putting together in a way <laughs> that felt not threatening and m- made sense of it to me by explaining, you know, we couldn't say this, we couldn't say this, we were trying to protect you, you would eventually come to understand all these things. And I think it's because I grew up in a loving family that in the end, the love was still there. And when you feel the love is still there, although you realize that cognitively, as you say, there has been this web of lies in which you have grown up, you also understand that the reason they did it is because they wanted to protect you from all these truths that would have threatened you if you were at a very young age. But what's tricky for me is that, um, and what still remains a puzzle is that i have grown up without ever knowing what I would have been if the system hadn't changed in Albania. My parents were completely convinced that if you came from this family background, you would never integrate into a socialist society because you would always be a class enemy, as it were. You would always came from the wrong background. So you came from this wealthy property owning uh, class on the one hand and this sort of intellectual, politically engaged family on the other, but not communist in any way. And so they said this would have come to haunt you. And because I had this stories of integration and getting on well with my teachers and getting on well with my school, despite all the weird things in my family, the fact that my family spoke French to me and so on. (laughs) There were, uh, I always felt, you know, even though there were all these little things that were strange about my upbringing or the fact that I was dressed in a particular way and not with the sort of standard socialist kids um, clothes, because my parents always tried to, my family always tried to make a point of sort of almost like an identity point. You know, they spoke French to me because my grandmother came from this aristocratic background in which everybody spoke French. And so it was her way of preserving her, I guess, aristocratic identity. 
and the same thing with the clothing, the same thing with the manners. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was confusing, but I felt I had been accepted. And so it was very hard for me to then see how I would have ended up if the system hadn't changed. And this remains and still is, in a way, the biggest puzzle I have. My parents were always convinced, look, you would have you know, become a dissident, you would have ended up either not going to university or going in something that you didn't want to do. You would never have been able to study philosophy, for example, because this was Marxist-Leninism and only the children of trusted families could study it. So, you know, none of none of the decisions, none of the choices I made subsequently would have been possible in that different system. But what other choices would have been possible and what I would have been as a person is a very strange and sort of troubling question that I still have. It seems here that that your grandmother is a very very important person uh, in not only because she she spoke French but also because she managed she manages to get on under these extremely restricted circumstances to a certain extent I feel that she's a role model of freedom that she says well you have to accept your biography and then find your own space there can you tell us a little bit about the character of this very interesting grandmother Yeah, so you're right. All the different characters in the book, in a way, reflect what I think are different ideas of freedom and reflected them as well, which is partially, you know, how I came to think about these ideas because of what they believed and what they brought and how they uh, articulated these conceptions, although obviously they didn't articulate them as conceptions of freedom. It was just me afterwards when I thought about what they said and what commitments they had, how they kind of fitted in different philosophical systems. But my grandmother had, I guess, this idea of freedom, which is the one that I am most philosophically feel attracted to, which is this kind of freedom as, as moral agency, whereby we are free to the extent that we choose to make moral decisions while still being aware of all the constraints around us and trying to, in some ways, rise above these constraints. And the reason my grandmother Nini is a good example of that idea is that she was, on the one hand, a direct victim of injustice. She comes from this aristocratic family. She lived in the Ottoman Empire. She'd never actually been to Albania until she was 20. Then she comes. She works for the uh, prime minister. She's an advisor. Uh, she collaborates with the king, who then flees. You know, she goes to the king's wedding, and there is where she meets my my grandfather, who was progressive socialist, but not so communist. And then after when things changed, in the kind of purge of the party, her husband goes to prison. And so she's left as a single mother and condemned to forced labor. And what was striking about her as she reflected on these events, which were, you know, extremely polar opposites. You go from a life of privilege and having servants and not knowing, as she used to say, how to boil an egg, to being in forced uh, in, in deported circumstances and forced labor and a single mother and having to do everything for herself and having to also visit his husband in prison. He was in prison for 15 years. So it was like basically the, the, the whole amount of time that it took for my father to grow up. And she always neither completely blamed others for her plight. I mean, of course, she said, you know, there's these responsibilities and this is what happened in the system. And this is what was done to me. But in some ways, she always felt that she had made decisions, even within these constraints. And so she was always able to find ways of retaining her dignity by asserting her will and making moral decisions, even in what would seem to us like purely oppressive circumstances where you lose everything, you lose your humanity and you lose, you know, you don't just lose your privilege, you don't just lose your family, you don't just get separated from your husband, but you actually lose a sense of who you are because of the radical and dramatic change in circumstances. And that's the one thing that she always insisted with me that she had never lost. And in fact, said to me, look, in every circumstance, there is something 
there is a kernel of humanity in every person that still shines through, regardless of how horrible the world is around you and regardless of how oppressive the circumstances are. And that's why she never thought of herself as pure victim. I mean, of course she was a victim, but she didn't think of herself as just a victim. And she, but she neither completely absolved others, so she could still see responsibility and, and change of responsibility. So for me, she is a very important character because I think it shows you the strength that is there, that is possible, even in these very oppressive circumstances, and how there is this morality and this kernel of morality, which I think is the ground on which you can then mobilize and the basis on which you can create a social critique and um, yeah, and give direction and purpose to the life that you have and to the society in which you live. And, and I think there's also, for someone like me who grew up in one of the most privileged Western countries in the history of the world as one of the most privileged children. Uh, looking at Albania from the outside and thinking of people growing up under these circumstances, or rather as your grandmother living under these circumstances, there's also a very, very important lesson to be learned here. I think that there is moral agency under all circumstances, and there is responsibility, and there is also that we should not impose our ideas of freedom and our ways of articulating freedom. We should understand that there is an articulation of freedom and a way of realizing that freedom under very, very different circumstances on the on the other side that should be kind of the starting point for dialogue and talking to or, or helping people. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, in a way, the more one of the more important, uh, I guess, take-home lessons, or insofar as there is any lessons, I guess one of the most important reflections that I wanted people to, to engage with or to take away from the book was through the history of my family and of my country to kind of respond to what I think is a dominant liberal or even less liberal way of thinking about the end of the Cold War and, you know, its related ideas of the end of history and so on whereby the dominant tendency is for people to relate to the plight of other countries or other groups who don't have this uh, liberal trajectory by thinking of yourself as a kind of moral savior who is ready exactly. to free people and to free countries from their backwardness or their plight or however you want to think about it by giving them these ideas of freedom which they don't have. And so by talking about these different ways in which freedom is present, even in a very oppressive society like Albania, even in a very totalitarian system, even in a system where there's this very high degree of censorship, I wanted to show in a way that there is a kind of risk of paternalism in the way in which we engage with other societies, which in some ways ends up perpetuating the problem that it's trying to solve, because it starts with the assumption that the locals are backward or primitive, or they don't have the sophisticated ideas of freedom, and you need to liberate them somehow. And I think it's a mistake to think that because in every society, however oppressive there is, because of, I think, this moral core that is present in everyone, there are always ways of thinking about social critique and of generating alternative models of society, which it's important to at least engage with. And I'm not saying that you know, one should just let whatever is going on, because obviously some of these scenarios are extremely oppressive and you wouldn't have wanted in Albania in that isolation to be even more isolated and even more marginalized by people who say, oh, well, they know better, they must know what they're doing. But I think it's about the way in which you engage with these realities and the kind of dialogues that you construct and in what attitudes you take when you approach these societies for the first time. Because I think they know about you, meaning the Western liberal world, a lot more than you know about them. And it's important to acknowledge that and to take it into account. Yeah, and that is always the asymmetry that 
people outside the West know the West, and people in the West they think they want the lives that we have in the West, so we know them. But but we we don't know a lot. There's another very um, there's another wonderful wonderful character in your book who embodies an, an ideology and who in my mind now is like kind of a, the new ca- cartoon character of capitalism and this is a guy f- from Holland who's been all over the world I believe his real name is Van der Berg but you yes. call him the crocodile could you <laughs> tell us right. about this absolutely wonderful character yeah so uh, well the, the, there is actually the crocodile in the book is almost like in a philosophical dualism with my teacher Nora Yes. And so I always like to talk about them because they're, you know, they're like Don Quixote and Sancho Pancho. They're kind of, or, I don't know, like Faust and Mephistopheles. There's a kind of philosophical dualism. They're, they're a pair in a way, even though they're not presented in this symmetry. It's only at the end of that chapter that they're presented. So the teacher is my, the, my, my moral education teacher, Nora. She's a believer in socialism and she teaches you the doctrine in a way, the, the ideals of socialism. And the crocodile comes up in the second. She's very important to the first part of the book, which explains what socialism is. And the crocodile, uh, he's an expert who works for the World Bank and has landed in Albania with the uh, effort to bring to Albania these structural reforms and privatization uh, processes and with the mission of opening it up to the free market. And he has a similar commitment to Nora, but to a different worldview, which is a liberal one. And he is also, like her, one of the moral victors. You know, he thinks himself as someone who is got the right moral ground in a way, who's got was on the right side of history. So she used the thing. She's on the right side of history. And uh, he's called the crocodile because he always wears this short sleeved shirt with a crocodile logo on it. And nobody knows what it is because this shirt with this logo didn't exist in um, in Albania during socialism. So when they arrive they're a little bit perplexing. Nobody knows what they are. But people think that this is to remind him of all the places that he's been because he's a kind of liberal cosmopolitan in a way. He's he's Dutch. But the fact that he's Dutch is only important to Albanians because he never thinks of himself as Dutch. He thinks of himself as a cosmopolitan. And uh, he has lived in so many different countries that he doesn't even remember their names because the mission has always been the same in all of them. And so it doesn't really matter what the, the differences are between these different contexts. For him, it's always, you know, they are, as he sees them, countries in transition. And so that's the only category that matters to him is that they're transitioning from whatever repressive, backward, authoritarian circumstances they're in, into, you know, a world of freedom and openness and, uh, you know, free markets, political freedoms, and so on. And uh, and he reads, you know, he reads the Financial Times, and unlike, uh, you know, my sister Nora, who never washed her hands after she met Enver Hoza, he always washes his hands, but his hands are dirty in a different way, because he's <laughs> complicit in the in the structural reforms that require the liberalization of the economy and the privatization of the state sector. And this becomes a new orthodoxy in the 90s and becomes a kind of imperative after the end of communism. So he's the person with whom my father has to work when he becomes the director of the Port of Duras. And unlike my father, who is deeply troubled about all the decisions that he needs to make about, you know, firing Roma people who work at the port as manual laborers in the name of modernization, he always justifies the cost of these transitions, you know, the job losses or the brain drain, as necessary to realize this kind of ideal of a liberal society to which he's committed. And so that's why he's in a pair with this other character who comes up in the socialist part of the book, Nora, because although uh, they're very different, you know, one is a socialist and the other is a liberal, they're both internationally minded. They are fully committed to the ideals they believe in. 
they're aware of the moral costs of these ideas, but they've also found ways of reconciling themselves with these costs. And so they represent the kind of people that every system needs in order to be, you know, to survive and to be maintained, regardless of the cracks that there are in the system. And so they're neither completely innocent nor completely blameworthy. And that's the crocodile. And there's there's this wonderful scene where he's invited, where people they welcome him in the in in the community, and he is invited to a party, and he's not really able to sing and dance with with uh, your family and your and and your neighbors. Could you tell us about that scene? Because I think that's just a wonderful illustration of this ideology and where who is. Yeah. So one of there are two things about him. The first one is that whenever he sees something new and he encounters a new context, he tends to think about, okay, what else have I seen that is similar to this? Which means that all the places become the same to him. That's why he doesn't remember their names. That's why all these countries are, you know, if you present him with a burek, which is the, the kind of the pie that people make in the Balkans, he says, oh, this reminds me of Samosa. And people don't know what Samosa is. So they're sort of perplexed because every time they, they always want to show him something new and to introduce him to the community. And he's always responding by showing extreme familiarity regardless of the fact that he actually never, has never tasted this food or has never seen this place. He will say, oh, this reminds me of, you know, uh, this this reminds me of Samosa, or this reminds me, this party is reminding me of the parties in Ghana, or uh, every new thing that you try to show him and of which you're proud, for him, is just a replication of something else that he's seen in a different part of the world, which he needs as a kind of abstract category for him to order his own world, you know, for his from his point of view, from his liberal liberal viewpoint. All of these places in some ways need to be the same for them to be amenable to receiving the same rules, which he's in charge of giving them. And so the, the, the scene is there is this party in which he's invited and people try and offer him the food and to explain to him, you know, how to dance, how to do the dances. And this is completely at some point it's so much for him that even this system that he's had of everything being familiar and known and, and responding to it, this extreme familiarity. At some point, he kind of cracks and breaks down. And when people try to dance, drag him onto the dance floor, he breaks. He sort of uh, breaks into um, shouting and uh, bounces his fist on the table and says, "I'm free." And this is almost like a kind of paradigmatic <laughs> illustration of the kind of freedom that is a freedom of replication, which, when it breaks down, he's he's unable to hold it together anymore. And and the locals are thinking and saying, "Well." What does it mean? It's free. We we're all free here. <laughs> Why are you saying you're free? And because they don't understand how he can kind of respond to this effort to be extremely welcoming and extremely receptive and to be very hospitable and to to talk to him. And they they're very curious. They ask him questions about you know where exactly do you come from and are you married? How old are you? And they try to make suggestions about the fact that they should find him a wife in Albania. And so he's responding to all these things as, with increasing hostility and unable to kind of engage with all these elements of local culture. And as I say, eventually it kind of gets to a breaking point where he's almost the victim of this community, which is there to welcome him. And uh, yeah, so this is one moment in which I guess the the locals assert their agency in this way by reminding him of their particularity and, and their uniqueness in a way and which he's unable to understand and engage with. Yeah, and and his idea of freedom is being free from engaging with them and not being free to participate and 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 building community with them but imposing these structural reforms from from the outside so so Leia, you grew up and and definitely in your own biography and in your own family 
experiencing the limits of, of socialism, to say the least. Then you had these expectations and the disappointment of of the crocodile's liberalism, and you saw how it tormented your own father. So you grew up yeah. with kind of both both seeing a lot of different people with different ideologies being moral agents and seeing the the failure of of uh, of opposing ideologies and then you've described how you leave the country and 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 never return and you meet uh with a young marxist i think that's in italy isn't it yeah yeah and there's a d- discussion here that i find very interesting because they they are marxists who never lived in a socialist country and 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 they and, and when you mention the the experience of china soviet union romania albania all the failures in in the real material history of of socialism they reject it as irrelevant and and dream of some of of some future ideal state where where their kind of theory could be could could, could be realized i think your your point against them is is very strong uh, but but how did how how did you yourself then become a socialist like you are today um well i mean i guess my socialism is, is slightly different because it's an effort to build on uh, rather than reject all these experiences of both socialism and liberalism actually as you know i i often see the um how both within liberalism and socialism there is a tendency to think this is a set of ideals and then whatever real society doesn't conform to that ideal is kind of a departure from it. It means the, the ideal hasn't been quite realized or things haven't quite worked out for reasons that are uh, external to the failures in the conception of, um, of the world. And this applies to both liberals and, and socialists. As I say, you know, there are many places in which liberal societies fail in other parts of the world. I think they also fail in the Western world, but especially if you look at Albania, look at the Balkans or Eastern Europe, there are so many failed liberal societies and yet hardcore liberals would always say, well, that's not real liberalism. They kind of need to realize the real liberalism to see the benefit. And something similar goes on with socialism. They sort of dismiss all these experiences out of uh, immediately by saying, well, they're not real socialist experiences because, you know, they've clearly betrayed. Um, and I always was uneasy with that because I think Systems fail not just because of the failures of individuals within them. And so if you think, oh, it's Stalin or it's Mao or, or whatever, I think there's something that you're not understanding about that society. And there's a kind of complexity that you're missing by just blaming or in the case of Albania, by just blaming one individual and the power that they've concentrated, which is not to deny that there are these factors, but I think there's something else going on. And it's important to understand uh, what else is going on, also to differentiate between different societies. And so, you know, the socialism of Albania was very different from the socialism of the Soviet Union, from the socialism of Yugoslavia, from the socialism of China. But if you reject all of them out of hand as not having nothing to do with your ideal of socialism, I think there is nothing to learn from these experiences and nothing to kind of, if, if you were to think of something about the ideal of socialism, which is attractive, which I find attractive because it's a way of thinking about freedom, which I find radical and plausible and interesting. And if you were to try and reconstruct that idea and to create institutions that reflect that idea, then I think it's really foolish to not engage with the history or with the past because the history is the source of a moral and political learning. And so you're basically just not learning any lessons from these failures and just thinking you're going to be better at, at, at reconstructing these societies. So how come I am a socialist? I'm a socialist because I guess I care about freedom, like a lot of people <laughs> cared about freedom in Albania during both communism and liberalism. 
I believe that there is something to the socialist ideal of freedom, which brings forward some liberal commitments to freedom and radicalizes them and makes them more open and more accessible to everyone. And so I'm convinced still by the socialist critique of capitalist societies. And, uh, and, and, and so this is why I sort of, this is a kind of moral critique of the societies in which we live. And what I try to do with my work is to think about this moral critique and to think about the social systems that kind of radicalize this commitment to freedom, which is, as I say, common to both uh, liberalism and socialism. And then to think about the lived experiences of both these societies as sources of moral learning and political learning. And that's why my work, uh, my philosophical, my academic work is often focused on the Enlightenment philosophical tradition and especially on the relationship between Kant and Marx, because I think of uh, of Kant's philosophy as giving you a good grounding into this moral critique of society from which you then need to uh, infer a kind of political critique. And I think of Marx's work as radicalizing that moral critique and start taking, giving it a kind of more political spin. And as I say, and I think we need to develop these ideas and we need to develop them in a way that brings in and draws in on all the wealth of knowledge that we have, not just philosophical, not just uh, political, not just social, but also historical. And so if we dismiss these experiences, which were in the name of these very same ideals, as having nothing to do with us, then I think these experiences are also completely uh, useless to us and, um, and, and in some ways feed into a kind of ignorance about the past, which runs the risk of being a source of error in the future as well. And in this sense, your book is really, really successful because you get solidarity with all the different characters striving for freedom, and you understand your mother's conception of freedom, which is very different from your father's, which is very different from your grandmother's, and even your great-grandfather. I have one last question for you, Leia. Your father was very skeptical of uh, the power of philosophy. Yeah. And And, uh, you know, when when the financial crisis hit uh, 12 or 13 years ago, I had an experience that was quite similar to the the views that are expressed by, by your father in the book, namely that we've been looking at all these ideas for such a long time. And I've been writing so yeah. many reviews and interviewing people about Marxist theory. And then we have a very, very, very complex financial system and people are evicted from their homes. They're losing their lives and no one even understand it. You know, it could might as well have been just religious doctrines saying you have to leave now because mm-hmm. no one understood mm-hmm. these mechanisms. And in a in a world where the material basis is so humiliating and there is such a huge inequality of knowledge that to me sometimes make the concept of democracy seems ridiculous as in relation to the real world that, that we live in. How, how, how do you see the, the potential for philosophy and theory in, 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 in that world? Because I do know that you see the potential for further emancipation and development of socialism in philosophy. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, obviously a very difficult question. I think uh, the way I see it and what gives me hope and, and optimism in the future is I don't think of democracy as a set of ideals that we need to realize. I think of it as a kind of practice that we all have to engage with in our daily lives and that is, goes together with a kind of pedagogical approach in a way and an educational effort that we all make, in, you know, depending on which position we occupy in society, depending on what social role we have. I think we all have our roles to play in constructing uh, social and political relations that can bring you one step further to this, uh, uh, you know, to this, to this new, to this future and to this, to this new world. So I think of it as 
you need to have, uh, so first of all, I think it's really important to have a belief that things can change fundamentally. And so I think in terms of individual moral psychological attitude, I find it's really important not to have, I guess, what my father had, which is, was in the end a kind of philosophical nihilism, which means that, oh, well, whenever something is created, it's always something bad happens and it never happens in the right terms, in the right way. I think there's a sense in which we need to accept that there are costs of action and that everything we do will be flawed. But that's not a reason not to try again from scratch every time and not to have the the optimism and the hope of creating these new social relations. Because if you start with the attitude of, well, you know, everything is bad, I criticize everything, I can see how everything's bad, but I don't really see how things can be better, then I think that only helps the status quo and that disturbs the current interest. So if you're really upset with the way in which the world works, then I think it's important to have a belief in an alternative system and to have the desire to construct both knowledge and the political relations that enable that alternative system to emerge and not to be happy with the fact that, you know, what you've got is the best of uh, what you could have and that everything else, everything new that you try is going to be just piling the same errors of the future because I think that's a very nihilistic attitude that's not productive. So, yeah, that's where I am, I guess. And your book is such a strong testimony to to that point and it's really, really an inspiring book. And I just want to compliment the tone of voice in the book because there is a spirit of curiosity and a spirit of hopefulness that I think is very inspiring for us. So thank you very much for the book, Leia, and we look very much forward to your coming to Denmark. Thank you very much, and I look forward to seeing how it goes with Danish readers. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Det var min samtale med Lea Yppi, og som sagt, så kan hun opleves på Louisiana den 11. november, og hun kan opleves i informationskantine den 12. november. Hendes bog Free, som på dansk hedder Fri, er udkommet på informationsforlag og kan købes inde på vores hjemmeside, hvis man klikker ind på information.dk og så går ned og finder der, hvor der står butikken. Så kan jeg sige, at der finder man en rigtig, rigtig god pris. I næste uge, der har jeg talt med Julia Cachet, som er en enestående interessant fransk økonom, som er på vej frem, og som har lavet nogle fantastiske undersøgelser af, hvad velstand og økonomisk ulighed betyder for vores demokratier. Så vi bliver i det samme spor, men den her gang tager det også et helt andet sted hen. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.